Uh, I want to introduce you to someone this morning. I'm gonna get the picture up on the screen behind me. That is Derek Watkins. Uh, most of you probably don't know who Derek Watkins is. You probably never have seen him before, never have heard of him before. But I think Derek Watkins actually has a very interesting story. Uh, about 15 years ago, I would say, Derek Watkins probably lived a very normal life just like you and I, right? Uh, he probably did the same things that you and I did, probably lived in a similar home as you and I did, ate at the same places, hung out at the same places as you and I did, except one day, Derek Watkins got connected to someone that absolutely transformed his life. I want you to take a look at a second picture on the right. Uh, that is Derek Watkins, a.k.a. Fonsworth Bentley, okay? Uh, you see, one day, Derek got connected to P. Diddy. I don't know if you can see that. That's, that's P, P. Diddy or Diddy or whatever he calls himself nowadays. Uh, but that's P. Diddy, and he got connected to him, and ever since then, his life has been absolutely transformed. See, uh, Fonsworth became a part of Diddy's entourage. In fact, he's officially Diddy's umbrella holder. I'm not even joking. It's not even... He is Diddy's umbrella holder, and ever since then, his life has looked different, right? So literally, every single day, wherever Diddy goes, he follows along, regardless of what the weather may be like on that day, and Fonsworth Bentley is always right by his side, holding his umbrella. Now, you got to remember this, right? Fonsworth has never written a song, right? He's never created a beat. He's never done a concert or went on tour or did an interview. But in simply being associated with Diddy and all the things that he has done, his life has completely changed. And it really has changed. Get this, okay? Since connecting with Diddy, Fonsworth has a net, uh, a net worth of a few million dollars. He's been on the cover of magazines. He's been on television shows and movies. He has over 44,000 Twitter followers, right? Everything about Fonsworth's life has changed. It's almost like he has a, a brand new identity. He no longer is who he once was. And he has done nothing for that to happen. It was just simply by association, right? But here's the thing. It's not just Derek Watkins. I mean, this type of thing happens all the time. Uh, think about Oprah and her best friend, Gail, right? Or John Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono, right? All these individuals are ultimately known by the people that they're associated with. All individuals who simply by association have their entire lives transformed just by being connected by someone, with someone. And so the question is, how does this at all relate to what we have just read, what Brenda has just read to us? I think it actually has a lot to do with it. Let me explain. You see, last week, Sibby preached to us from Colossians chapter 2, and he was looking at verses 8 through 10, right? So when he got to 9 and 10, he basically reminded us of, of two things, two things that he wanted us to know, that Paul wanted us to, uh, to understand. Those two things are who Jesus is, and the second thing is who we are in Jesus, right? Who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. This is what Paul says. The first thing he says in verse 9, he says, for in Jesus... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the question is, what is Paul talking about here, right? What Paul's saying is that in Jesus, we find the very essence of God. You see, Jesus doesn't just act like God or, or behave like God. Jesus is actually God. There is nothing ungodlike about Jesus, 
So everything that is true of God is actually also true of Jesus. So when folks say things like, you know, Jesus was just a, a great prophet, right? Or when they say things like, he was a great teacher or a good guy, what Paul would say is this. He says, don't you see, he's so much more than that. Listen, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. In fact, he's the, the second person of the triune God, right? Jesus is fully God. He's nothing short of being God himself. But then we heard in verse 10, and this is sort of the, the icing on the cake, that this very Jesus, this very Jesus who is God, Paul says, we have been filled in him. Okay, we have been filled in him. You see that, that phrase, in him or in Christ, is something that's used a lot in the New Testament. It's, it's used hundreds of times, even by Paul specifically, right? And that phrase is referring to one of the most mysterious and glorious things that the Bible has to teach us. Here's what it's basically saying. He says, when people, right, when people come to trust in Christ, we are actually united to Christ. That when we come to believe in Christ, that in some sort of mysterious way, the Bible says that we find ourselves in him and that he is in us. So think about that again. Jesus is God. When we trust in Jesus, God is in us and that we are in him. Now, if we were to be honest, that's, that's a hard thing to really grasp, right? It's even a harder thing to try to explain to somebody. There's no real diagram that we can use to try to make, that, uh, make, and make it more understandable. But what the Bible is basically saying is that through our intimate relationship with him, in many ways, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. You see, he does the work, Jesus does the work, and we benefit from it. And simply by our association, our lives are completely changed. Right? Consider that. Simply by being associated with Christ, our lives are completely changed. In fact, Paul goes on to say even something deeper. He says that we're made complete in him. We're made complete in him. Now, we're not talking about some sort of Jerry Maguire, you complete me, like that, that sort of thing. I think what Paul is talking about is something much more deeper than that, right? Consider this for a moment, right? When Derek Watkins con uh, connects with Diddy, think about how much his life has transformed as a result of that connection, or when uh, Gail King uh, connects with Oprah, consider how much her life has changed as a result of that association. Now imagine for a moment, if that's true of those folks, what would it look like when you connected Jesus, who is the fullness of God, right? I mean, what in the world does that sort of transformation of connecting to him look like? We see that's exactly what Paul is trying to address here in this passage that we're looking at this morning. You see, if you're here and you're a Christian, I think what Paul wants you to see in the next four verses is this. He wants you to know what your life looks like to be in him, what it looks like for you to be connected to him, how your union with Jesus has actually transformed your entire life. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, well, I think what Paul is inviting you to see this morning is that you need to be in him. He's inviting you to come and to be in him. This is an invitation for you to come and to be united with Christ, to have your life transformed by Christ. If you're a Christian, he wants you to see the reality of who you are. If you're not a Christian this morning, 
He's inviting you to come and make this a reality. So here's what we're essentially saying this morning. This is sort of the, the big idea that we want to take away this morning as we look at this passage, okay? It's this. It's in Jesus, you are complete, okay? In Jesus, you are complete, completely saved and completely forgiven. In Jesus, you are complete, completely saved and completely forgiven. So let's get started and we'll take a look at what this means. The first point, in Jesus, you are completely saved. I'm going to read from Colossians 2, 11 and 12 again. Hear this with me. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, obviously, that's a mouthful. A lot was just say, said there, so let's, let's try to break that down for a little bit, okay? So the first thing that maybe we should notice is the, the two sort of key terms that are being discussed in this chunk right here, okay? The two terms are circumcision and baptism. And I think in, in normal, everyday life, circumcision isn't something that you and I kind of just talk about every single day, right? In fact, if you're maybe not familiar with the Bible, maybe if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, it may seem a little odd that we're gathering together and studying on this topic of circumcision. It just seems like a really weird thing for people to discuss together. But here's the thing, right? Even though it seems odd and maybe irrelevant for us this morning, it would have been a very common thing, even a very important thing for the people at Colossae. You see, for the Israelites who are at Colossae, they would know exactly why it is that Paul is bringing up this topic of circumcision. You see, it's been a part of their history for as long as they can remember. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis, right? The first book of the Bible in chapter 17 where, where uh, God is talking to Abraham, where he's creating a covenant with Abraham. You see, God, what he does in that chapter, he tells Abraham that he should tell the Israelites that they should be circumcising their children when they turn eight days old right? They should circumcise their children when they turn eight years old. And the reason for that was this, that it was meant to be a sign or a symbol of the relationship that God was creating with Israel, right? It was meant to be a sign or a symbol of the relationship that God was creating with Israel, with these people. You see, he was making promises to these people, right? He was making a promise that he would be their God and that they would be his people. He was promising to to bless them. He was promising that he would set them apart as a, as a chosen nation. And so this physical act of circumcision was meant to signify or to symbolize these promises. And so what did the Israelites do? For generations, right? For generations and generations, Israelites uh, followed this command really closely. I mean, to the point where it became sort of a part of their identity, right? I mean, Jews literally started calling themselves the circumcision, right? They, they were so identifying themselves with this act, this symbol, that when they referred to themselves, they would call themselves the circumcision. And actually, they would even refer to those who were not Jews, or in other words, Gentiles, they would call to them as the uncircumcision, right? It was such a part of their identity that they would call themselves the circumcision, and they would call those who are not like them the uncircumcision. In fact, this act of circumcision may have been so getting to their heads 
that the scholars believe that some folks who were maybe in Colossae at that church at that time, who were Jewish Christians, were trying to talk to Gentile Christians and to convince them that maybe in order for them to really become Christians, they needed to be circumcised, right? So these Jewish Christians were talking to Gentile Christians and saying, listen, if you really want to be saved, right, what you need to do is to be circumcised. So they would say something like this. So they would say, hey, you believe in Jesus, right? Great. But do you know what you're missing? Do you know what would really make your salvation complete? It would say circumcision. You see, if you were circumcised, then you would really be a Christian. You would really be saved. And what was happening was, maybe somebody, as that conversation was happening, Gentiles were sort of second-guessing themselves. They were wondering, you know, am I really legitimate? Is this really true of me? Am I really saved? Am I really a believer in God because I'm lacking this, this act? Right? Now, for us, I imagine... Uh, as we come to church or maybe anywhere else, there's probably nobody walking around trying to convince you that you need to be circumcised, right? And if that conversation is happening, please come and talk to us. we got to kind of settle that out. Uh, but usually, I would say, that's probably not a part of the conversation. But I think you and I have maybe been told many similar things, right? Like you and I maybe have know, been told before, you know, it's great that, you're, that you believe in Jesus, but do you know what you're missing? Speaking in tongues. You know, if you, were, if you were really Christian, if you really want to be saved, then that's what you need to be doing. You need to speak in tongues. Or maybe it was baptism, right? Maybe somebody has told you before, you know, your salvation is incomplete unless you've been baptized in a, in a particular way, in a particular form. Or maybe people will say, you know, you need to go to a church who does things in, in this certain way. Or, or maybe you need to do this or you need to do that. And then then you would really be saved. What are we saying? In other words, you see, people are trying really hard to try to convince you that Jesus isn't enough, that you actually need something else. And I think that's why, exactly why, verses 11 and 12 are so crucial for us to hear and believe. Here's what Paul is essentially trying to say to us this morning. In Jesus, you are completely saved. In Jesus, you are completely saved. Hear me. In Jesus, meaning in being united with Jesus, not being in united with circumcision or baptism or tongues or anything else, but in being united with Jesus, you are completely saved. So how is that? Because you see, I think all of these things that we're talking about here are simply meant to point us to Jesus. And so the only thing that ultimately matters is your union with Christ, right? Hear it again. This is what Paul says. He says, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In other words, when you are in Christ, it doesn't matter whether you are circumcised physically or not, right? Because physical circumcision was only meant to lead you to God, not replace him, or for you to see circumcision as being equal to God. And that's what the people failed to see, right? You see, ever since the beginning, ever since the beginning, ever since Genesis 17, when God had instilled the symbol, the physical symbol was always meant to just point you to God. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul that you may live. Do you see that? You see, in the Old Testament, physical circumcision was meant to, to symbolize a spiritual purification that God was doing in your heart. This physical act was meant to uh, symbolize a spiritual purification that God was doing in your heart, a purification that would allow you to have relationship with God. You see, it wasn't the symbol that was the most important. It was who the symbol was pointing to that mattered the most. You get that? It wasn't the symbol that was most important. It was who the symbol was pointing to that's most important. Let me give you an example. It's sort of like if you get in your car and you put an address into your navigation system, right? So you put an address into your navigation system and it starts telling you where you should be going. It tells you to make a left here, make a right there, go straight here, and you keep driving according to what the navigation system says. And then finally, you get to where you want to be but when you get there, you're sort of so enamored by the navigation system that you actually never get out of the car, right? You just sit there and you stare at this device and you think about how wonderful this device is and how much you want other people to know about this device and, and to really even own this device. Meanwhile, this beautiful destination is sitting right in front of you, but you're too busy staring at the screen, right? You see, it's meant to be a symbol pointing to something greater than what the symbol itself is actually representing, but we're sitting there looking at the navigation system, thinking how wonderful the system itself is. But you see, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, stop staring at circumcision. Instead, stare at Christ. Stare at your union with Christ, because when you're in him, Paul says, you're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What is Paul talking about here? You see, when you're in Christ, it says you're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You see, in other words, when you're in Christ, circumcision ultimately isn't a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Paul says you're circumcised by Christ's circumcision. Hear it again. It says, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of of Christ. Now, Paul isn't referring to here uh, the moment where Jesus was circumcised on his eighth day, right? That's not what he's talking about when he says the circumcision of Christ. No, instead, it's meant to be this graphic picture of Christ's death on the cross, right? He's calling it a circumcision where he was sort of, his, his body was cut off, cut up in, 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 on the cross when he was being punished for sins. On the cross, uh, Christ's body was violently being stripped away. And so what Paul's saying is, Jesus endured physical circumcision so that through him, you may be cleansed and made right with God. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, you have a relationship with God because of the circumcision of Christ, because of the crucifixion of Christ, and because of your union with him, it's not because of a symbol. You are saved because you are in him. It's because you have absolutely become intertwined with Jesus so that when he died on the cross, right, when he was circumcised on the cross, you died with him. That's what this union is actually telling us. 
that in some sort of mysterious way, and it's hard for us to know what that means or completely understand what that, what that actually is telling us, but what the Bible is saying is this. Because you are un- in, in, in union with him, because you are united with him, in some sort of mysterious way, when Jesus died, you died with him through faith. But you see, Paul doesn't stop there. He extends this idea from one sign to the next sign. He goes from circumcision to now baptism, right? Listen to what Paul says in verse 12. He says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what's Paul saying here? He's using another word picture, right? First, it was a sign of circumcision and how that sign points you to uh, the death of Christ. But now he's pointing to the sign of baptism and he's saying this sign actually points you to the burial and resurrection of Christ. I'm, I'm guessing many of us here have seen baptism before. Maybe you've seen it at Seven Mile Road. But what do we do when we baptize someone, right? In the summer when we go out into the river, what we do is we gather people and, and we go out into the river and we pull out the person who is being baptized. They come into the water with us, right? And so they're standing and what do we do? We sort of take them and we lower them into the water, right? And we lower them to the point where now their body is completely covered by water. Now, what's that representing? It's representing the fact that when they are lowered in that way, they are almost like it's being put into the grave in the way that Jesus was being put into the grave, right? And so once they're under the water and they're completely covered, we pull them back up again and they stand. Again, the question is, what does that represent? It represents the resurrection of Christ, that, that just like Jesus was raised from the dead, that they too are now being resurrected from their deadness. But you see, when we gather around the river uh, on Baptism Sunday, it is actually just meant to be a, a picture of what has actually happened. It's not the reality of what has happened at that very moment. You see, it's just like, just like circumcision is meant to be a sign, your baptism is also meant to be a sign pointing to a greater reality. The reality that because you are in Christ, you have not only died with him, but you have also been buried with him. And because you have been buried with him, you have also now been raised with him as well. Brothers and sisters, what we need you to hear is this. Your salvation is complete in Christ. And the reason why it's complete is because through faith, you are in Christ. You see, he does all the work, and you receive all the benefits. There's nothing that you can add to it. It's not circumcision or baptism or tongues or anything else that saves us. It is Christ. It is your union with him. All you need is Jesus. You see, Jesus is sufficient. He has done it all. And so in Jesus alone, you are completely saved. In Jesus, you are completely saved. And so let's keep going on to our second point. In Jesus, you are completely forgiven. This is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Let me read it for you. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with this legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross, to the cross. 
Again, there's a lot being said here. So the question is, what's going on here? Right? It's almost like this. It's almost like Paul is helping us to see that in order for you and I to understand and even really appreciate the salvation that we have in Christ, it's almost like we need to be reminded of what our lives look like apart from Christ. And I think what Paul is showing us here is that our lives apart from Christ isn't very pretty, right? What he says is this. He says, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. What does that mean? What that means is that from the moment that you took your first breath, right? From the moment that you took your first breath, we actually exist as spiritually dead people. Consider that for a moment. Even though you're, you're moving around and, and your hands are moving and your legs are moving, within you, you actually exist as spiritually dead people. We are born as those who are separated from God. And here's the thing, right? That's true of everyone. That's true for everyone. Even if your, your dad is the pastor or if your parents are atheists, it's true of you. Uh, whether they're really kind people or your parents were horrible people, it's true of you. When you were born, even though you were breathing and you were moving, you actually exist as spiritually dead people. So the question is why? Because of our first parents, right? Because of Adam and Eve. You see, Adam's disobedience in the garden caused the entire world to be spiritually dead. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, sin enters into the world, and, and Adam, through Adam, and it leaves the entire world to be spiritually dead and spiritually separated from him. And here's the reality of our predicament, right? We are born spiritually dead, and there's nothing that we can do about it, right? On our own, there's nothing that we can do about it. Remember, uh, we're spiritually dead, right? And I think one of the most important characteristics of someone who is dead is that they don't respond, Right? Dead people don't respond. No matter how hard they try or how much they may put their mind or their strength into it, there's nothing that a dead person can do to bring himself or herself back to life again. And that's what Paul is saying is true of our own condition. He's saying we're born as spiritually dead people, and there's nothing that we can do about it. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized or, or circumcised. It doesn't matter if you grew up kind of going to the church every single day of your life. You almost remember being there all the time. Or if you've grown up kind of being the nicest person in the world, all of us, from the moment that we are born, we're nothing more than spiritual corpses. And actually, Paul says, it gets worse. He says, not only are we dead in, your, dead in our trespasses, but it says, also the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, commentators and, and scholars kind of differ on what they think this section means. There's a bunch of different ways to read it, but I think what Paul's saying here is this. Remember, uh, who did the Jews call the uncircumcision? The Gentiles, right? And so listen to what Paul says about the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, meaning they were not circumcised, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, Jews were calling Gentiles the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. 
Remember you, remember that you, you meaning Gentiles, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What is Paul talking about? He's saying this is what's true of Gentiles before coming to Christ, that they weren't God's covenant people, right? They weren't people who had received the law of God. Uh, they weren't people who had received the word of God. So it's like this. Not only are they dead in their trespasses, but it also seemed like their situation was just hopeless. It, for the Gentiles, it's almost seemed like the odds were completely against them, right? They were born spiritually dead and alienated from God, and it seemed like they grew up in a situation or in a context where God was just sort of nowhere to be seen, right? It was just like a hopeless situation. And I imagine that for some of us, some of us, we know exactly what that's like, right? Fine, you know, we're all born as spiritually dead people. And so in that way, we're all the same. But for some of us, we know what it looks like to be born into a family who could care less about God, right? Who, who isn't connected to God in any way, who didn't know him and to be honest, didn't care to know him, right? We weren't hearing truth on a regular basis. Our, our, our lives weren't lived in search of truth. We were spiritually dead, and there didn't seem to be any way out of it. Our context, everything around us was dead as well. It, it sort of just seemed like a, a hopeless situation, like the odds were against us. And I think that's why this next phrase in this verse is so wonderful. Paul first says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Or God made you alive together with him. You see, remember, dead people are in need of someone to intervene, right? The dead can't raise themselves. And that's exactly what God did. You see, he took those who were spiritually dead and he made them alive. And how did he do that? He did that by uniting them with Christ. You see, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the, the only hope that spiritually dead people have in this world is by being united with Christ. It is in being united with his death and with his burial and his resurrection. You see, by being in Christ, we who are dead can be brought to life. And Paul goes on to say, listen, this is the result of your resurrection. He says, when you are with Christ and when you have died with him and buried with him and raised with him, Paul says, it leads to you having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. It leads to God having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. Hear that. We have been forgiven of all of our trespasses. You see, when we were spiritually dead, we were identified by our sin. But now that we've been united with Christ, we're identified as those who have been forgiven. For some of us who are here this morning, I feel like we especially need to hear this. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven of all of your sins. All of your sins. 
there are some of us who are sitting here this morning who constantly sort of just live feeling haunted by your sin. You've confessed your sin. You've repented of your sin. But it seems like no matter what, the, the guilt and the shame of your sin keeps rearing its head back into your life again, haunting you once again. And I think what Paul is trying to say to you this morning is, dear brother, dear sister, let me remind you that if you are in Christ, all, all of your sins have been forgiven in him. You see, you, were, you died with him. You were buried with him, and now you have been raised to life in Christ, and so you are no longer associated by your sin or to your sin. Your connection isn't primarily to your sin. You're associated to Christ. You are in him. In fact, listen to how Paul wonderfully describes your forgiveness. Verse 14, it says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with this legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, in the, in the Roman world, this, this term, the record of debt, it, it referred to a written note of indebtedness, right? Sort of like an IOU. It was like a, a legal document that a debtor would sign, kind of promising to pay back the debt that he owed. Like if you ever purchased a car or, or a home before, you remember the, the sea of documents that you have to sign when you get to that table, right? Kind of promising that this debt that I have towards you, I'm going to, to pay it back. It's one of the most intimidating things in the world. Well, this is the same idea. Paul's saying that all of us have this metaphoric, we have, all of us have metaphorically signed an IOU towards God, right? Spelling out our debt towards him, what we owe him, because of our sin. Now, when we talk about cars and houses, there is sort of some chance, some hope that we have that we are able to pay those things off at some point in our lives, right? But the debt that we owe towards God, it sort of feels like the, the U.S. deficit, right? Like, like trillions and trillions of dollars. It's like no matter how much you and I may work, like we can literally work every single day of our lives for, you know, every hour, every single day, for the rest of our lives. And it's almost like no matter how much we work, it'll be like a drop in the ocean. There's nothing that we could possibly do to, to make this right. You know, if we're living in that sort of debt, then it can really feel like a hopeless situation. And that's why what Paul says here is so astounding about what Christ has done. You see, what Paul says is that our record of debt was taken and nailed to the cross. Now, why is that significant? You see, uh, when a, a criminal was being hung on the cross, what they would do is they would also nail to that cross a notice, right? And on that notice was, was listed all the things that this criminal has done uh, to deserve what he is receiving right now. Right? So on the cross would be a person, and then it would be a notice describing all the things that this criminal has done that now he is being put to death for. Well, what Paul is saying here is this. If you and I, if we had a moment to go and to see Christ on the cross, if you and I had an opportunity to go and to look at the notice that hung there, that was nailed along with him to that cross, he says, when you read that notice, you would see all of your sins on that notice. You see, Christ, who had done nothing, innocent in every single way, 
faultless in every single way, is now hanging on a cross, nailed to a cross, and on that notice that hangs there with him is all of your sins. Every single one of them. Jesus died for them all so that you're no longer responsible for it. it all of it has been paid for. It reminds us of that great hymn, It Is Well, this verse. It says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus, you are completely forgiven. In Jesus, you are completely forgiven. You had a debt that you could not pay. And so Jesus paid it all. In Christ, all of your sins, all of your sins, have completely been forgiven. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Jesus is inviting you to come and to be united with him. You see, in him, you could be made complete. In him, you who are walking as dead corpses can be made alive, brought back to your life from the spiritual death that you're experiencing. In him, you can be forgiven of all of your sins. If you're here this morning and you're not united with Christ, we would love for that to become a reality for you, just as God, by his grace, has made it a reality for many in this room. We would love to see that become a reality. And so if you have questions about what that means or what that actually looks like, <coughs> I would invite you to come after service and to talk to me or to Pastor Jay. We would love to talk with you and to talk through what being in Christ is all about. But if you're here and you know Jesus, then what I think Paul wants to remind you this morning is this. In Jesus, you really are complete. You are completely saved. You are completely forgiven. Your union with Christ changes everything about your life. You know, in one sense, we're exactly like Derek Watkins, right? We have done nothing. Uh, Christ has done everything. And so in him, our lives are completely transformed. Because in Jesus, you are complete. Completely saved and completely forgiven. You don't have to look anywhere else. May God help us to remember these truths today and all the days of our lives. Let's pray together.